Jonah chapter 1. The book of Jonah chapter 1 verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. This morning I'd like to extend our look at the ancestors of New Testament evangelism. I know that I said three weeks ago that we were done with this part of our study, um, but um, the Lord laid this on my heart, and uh, who am I to argue with uh, the Holy Spirit? Uh, yes, there are a lot of differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. There are differences between Paul and Barnabas, and Isaiah, and Daniel, and Moses. But there are enough similarities to give us things to consider in our ongoing ministry. Because even though we may claim to be New Testament saints, we're not in the New Testament day, and things are different for us than they were for Barnabas or Philip. In the case of our subject this morning, most of his example is negative. Usually I try to be positive. Here are the things that we need to implement. Most of this is, here are some things which we should not implement. Here are things which were, were failings or sins in this man, and I see them in us as well, generally speaking, and they shouldn't be there. So we'll point out a couple of these things. First of all, we begin as we have the last couple of lessons by considering the man, Jonah. He is not identified as anyone particularly special, although he was. Jonah was not a member of the royal family. He was not a descendant of David and Solomon, as Isaiah appears to have been. And we aren't told that his father was a Levite. We're not told that he was a part of the priesthood, as was John the Baptist and some of the other prophets. But he was a member of God's chosen nation. And as such, he had the responsibility to glorify the Lord. You may not be called to go to Iran as an evangelist. Praise the Lord for that. But you are still a representative of the Lord. You have not been called to stand before a congregation and preach the word of God. But you are still responsible to tell your neighbor whenever possible. We are still ambassadors for Christ. Now you don't need to turn there. But the, there is another place where we read of Jonah. It's 2 Kings 14.25, and it's almost a statement uh, in passing. And it is really quite minimal. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah was a prophet during the days of wicked Amaziah, king of Judah. The prophecy mentioned is only that Israel is going to acquire a strip of land along the Mediterranean coast, which, because it's a prophecy of God, they did. And that's it. That's all we know about Jonah. There in 2 Kings and what we have right here. 
Since he was a prophet, some people might question whether or not he ought to be a part of this series of lessons on personal evangelism. He's a prophet. He's a preacher of some sort. Sometimes he spoke to large crowds. I imagine him going into Nineveh in uh, chapter 3 and just beginning to raise his voice, preaching on the street corner, not many people listening to him. But then as the, the minutes and the hours go on, the crowds get larger and larger, and he may be preaching to several thousand people before he's finished. So he's a preacher. He preaches to large crowds. He is not a prototypical soul winner. He's not a personal evangelist anywhere in this book. So I agree that my comments may shift back and forth between his public ministry and what should have been a private ministry or could have been a private ministry. And that still applies to Scott Silvers. It applies to me. Here I am standing to this large congregation this morning. Uh, and that still doesn't take away from the responsibility they have to speak one-on-one -on -one with other people. So the preacher is still supposed to be a personal evangelist. He's still supposed to be a soul winner. And the lessons that I'd like to draw this morning apply to me and to you. No matter who we are, they apply to us and to Paul and to Peter, and to Philip, and to Spurgeon, and to Shubal Stearns. Okay? Like Isaiah, Jonah had been serving the Lord for a while, and then came this very special Great Commission that we read of in his book. As Christians, we all have generic orders. Go ye into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. And in that light, since we cannot personally go for various reasons, we encourage others. We encourage the preacher to preach the cross, preach justification, preach reconciliation and repentance. And we take of our finances and we give it to a missionary, an evangelist who's going to uh, Taiwan to preach the word of God. And we pray and we rejoice in answers to prayer, not only at home, but when they take place in the Philippines through the missionaries' work over there. And sometimes we praise those who make great sacrifices in order to take the gospel to Brazil or Peru or the Philippines. But then, as you have probably experienced, every once in a while the Lord comes along and gets pointed Get specific. And he says, You, I want to tell, I want, I want you to share the gospel with that person over there. We have the general commission, and every once in a while the Holy Spirit comes along and makes it very personal to us. Go ye to your neighbor, George. And invite him to the house of God and share with him your testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, in Jonah's case, it was go, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for its wickedness is come up before me. So his evangelistic message began with the Lord and God's holy hatred for sin. Go to Nineveh, they are wicked people, cry against them in their sin. Modern missions did not begin with William Carey, despite all the books that I have which say that it did. And it didn't begin with Adoniram Judson as a representative of the United States <coughs> in that place. It didn't begin with the Apostle Paul. Evangelism began in the heart of God. Not in the New Testament, not subsequent to the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. It's always been there. It began with the Lord. God went to Jonah and said, cry against that wretched city saying essentially, tell them to repent before me. The stench of the Assyrian wickedness was seeping into the throne room of God, if I can put it that way. We'll come back to this. But at this point, I'll just say that Jonah was obedient with just a touch of disobedience. He will eventually go to Nineveh Declaring that God's judgment was very soon to fall upon that nation or that city. But we aren't told that he told them to repent. He just said, here it comes. Get ready for it. The judgment of God is coming. Jonah had a problem. He had a serious sinful problem which still exists in Christianity today. Jonah was a bigot. He not only disliked the people of Assyria, he hated them. He despised the people of Nineveh. He may have been justified in his own mind for his bigotry, saying that Assyria was an enemy to his nation and had often and recently uh, ravaged Israel, plundered Israel, off and on for years. And while that is history and certainly true, it didn't negate the commission or the command that God gave to him. Go to Nineveh and preach. Cry against them. Perhaps just the name of Assyria's capital, Nineveh, made Jonah's blood boil. When he saw a stranger who may have been wearing a, a garment, a hat, a, a cloak that looked more Assyrian than Israelite, he may have turned away in disgust. He may have disliked the names that were more common among them, their surnames, even their uh, uh, given names. The name Mama gave to the child, oh, that's, that's one of those kind of names. We, in our race, we don't use that kind of name. 
He didn't want any of those people in his church. He didn't want any of those people associating with his family. Forgetting that you are a sinner yourself, is there any special kind of sin which you particularly uh, detest? We're not talking about race, people. In this case, let's shift to, to sin. Maybe you hate abortion. You ought to hate abortion. So does that mean you hate abortionists? Well, they're pretty wicked. And what about that woman who had the abortion? You're going to hate her too? How far do we take this thing? That abortionist is a murderer. Can you lay aside those sins in order to lovingly and with meekness and fear share the gospel with that person? God can forgive adulterers and murderers and child abusers and even homosexuals and transvestites. God can do that. Can you do that? I don't like those people. There's no room for you to hate or refuse to evangelize anyone. You are as unworthy of the gospel as Hitler was unworthy of the gospel. Bigotry has no place in Christianity. No matter how justified some people may think it ought to be or could be, is. Jonah was a bigot. And because of that, he foolishly tried to run away from the commission God had given to him. I'm going to assume you're quite familiar with the book of Jonah and the history of this man. When people don't want to do God's will, they can find excuses and justifications. We're just good at it. Part of our nature. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Obviously that doesn't apply to you because you're not ordained. You shouldn't be running around baptizing anybody. So, okay. Don't have to obey that one. Throw that one aside. I don't need to personally give to missions because my church takes 10% of the general offering and puts that into the mission account. So I'm covered there. I don't have to give. I believe in the sovereignty of God. So the people in Nineveh whom the Lord is going to save will be saved whether I go to Nineveh or not. We can find all sorts of ways to get out of our responsibilities. Notice that the Bible doesn't say that Jonah fled out of Nineveh in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah. Excuse me, we're still in chapter 1. Uh, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. It doesn't say that Jonah fled out of Nineveh. It doesn't say that Jonah fled from the commission that God gave him. But Jonah rose to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of God. 
Wow. Come on, Jonah. Do you really think you'll succeed from hiding or hiding from the omniscient God? What are you thinking? How are you thinking? King David once prayed, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there, obviously. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me or slap me down, in Jonah's case. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light unto me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to the omniscient God. Nothing shows the sinful Christian's native stupidity than trying to hide from God. Hide their sins from God. Hide themselves from God. It just isn't going to work. But we need to remember that our sin, whatever variety and shape, may have serious effects on our neighbors, on our family. Humanly speaking, Jonah's bigotry could have resulted in the destruction of the entire city of Nineveh, speaking logically without the Lord involved in it. And that would have certainly pleased him. His rebellion was a sin, not only against God, it was a sin against the people of Nineveh. Furthermore, he nearly caused the deaths of a small group of sailors who had nothing to do with the equation one way or another. Our sins may hurt or devastate other people. But as David said in prayer, after his sin with Bathsheba, and the husband of Bathsheba, against thee, Lord, have I sinned, and done all this evil in thy sight. He sinned against Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. But this is a sin against God. They go together. In running toward Joppa and Tarshish, Jonah was sinning against the people of Nineveh, but he was rebelling against God, fleeing from the presence of the omnipresent God. As true as it was of Paul, it is true of Jonah, and it is true of us as well. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. I'm a debtor both to the wise and the unwise, because I have been given a gift which didn't deserve, and they ought to have it as well. Therefore, as Paul said in Romans 1, so much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, or you that are in Nineveh. Jonah however, was not ready to make that surrender. 
That's Jonah the person. Now, the witness. Even before he got to Nineveh, Jonah was an unwitting evangelist and ambassador for the Lord. We are the Lord's ambassadors in whatever shoes we're wearing. You like your Birkenstocks, you like your uh, uh, flip-flops, your uh, three-penny loafers, whatever. Whatever shoes you're wearing, you're a witness for the Lord. In Jonah's case, despite trying to hide from God, the Lord was going to use him. Even there on the ship. The Lord knew that Jonah was in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, trying to get to Spain, to Tarshish. He was asleep in the hold of the ship while a storm was wrenching the boat apart. That's hard to imagine, but uh, that's what we're told here. The omnipotent God has more tools than Stanley Black and Decker. Did you know, by the way, I, I looked this up. I, I try to authenticate my illustrations. Did you know that Stanley is owned by Black and Decker, that they are one corporation? Anyway, the Lord has more tools than Makita and Steele and Black and Decker all put together. The Lord could have used, he could have called, he could have used a hundred other prophets to evangelize Nineveh if he wanted to do that. But he didn't want to do that. He was sticking with Jonah. You're going to do it, Jonah. You're going to do it. Without explanation, God wanted this man to evangelize Nineveh. So the Lord sent a great wind into the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. What sort of tool is the Lord going to use to wake us up? And that day we need to be Awakened, Brother Austin's message last Sunday. Uh, will it be a tragedy in the family? Will it be the destruction of our marriage? Will it be our, our broken health? What tool will the Lord use? As I say, he has an infinite number of weapons in his arsenal. Now here's a fact which Christians should never forget. We are testimonies in shoes. We are testimonies for Christ, whether we like it or not. If you are a Christian, then you represent your Savior, whether you open your mouth and speak of him or not. You carry a message, whether or not you are evangelist. Sometimes it's a good and proper message. Sometimes it is just the opposite, but you still have a message. Sometimes we magnify that message with the way that we live. Sometimes we tarnish it with the way that we live. The sailors and the captain began to panic in the midst of God's chastisement on Jonah. The Lord wasn't dealing with them, but Jonah's in the, in the, in the, ark, in the ark with them. I, don't, I haven't done it recently, but I used to think about what if the Lord sent a lightning bolt to kill that guy and here I am standing right beside him? It could happen. Those sailors were superstitious. Laying that aside, 
they knew that they were in the midst of something special. Divine circumstances. This is no ordinary storm. This is an act of God. And they knew that. Sometimes, as we see with Paul on Mars Hill, the superstitions of people can be manipulated to bring them to consider the Lord. It's not always the case, but sometimes it works. In this case, the Lord revealed to everyone that Jonah was the cause and catalyst for this disastrous storm. Chapter 1 and verse number 10 says, The men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Uh, how did that happen? Hey, it's good to have you on board. Why are you sailing with us today? Oh, I'm just uh, running from the Lord. Just laugh it off. Just make it a joke. Nobody paid any attention to it. Oh, I'm just running from Jehovah. That's okay. Initially, the statement meant nothing to those idolaters. Whatever. We're glad that he paid his fee. But... Uh, after snickering for just a moment, and the storm came on them, things began to change. Now, the sinfulness of Jonah, the professed Christian, was really exposed and revealed to the eyes of these idolaters. We can try to hide our divine lineage, our, rec our, our relationship with the Lord, but it will eventually come out one way or another. Most of the time, the effect of hiding our testimony ruins our testimony. Notice the development of the words of the mariners. The testimony of Jonah. Verse 5. The mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. Lowercase. They probably pulled out an idol or started running uh, their fingers over the necklace that they had. They started praying to their, their God. Then verse 6. The shipmaster told Jonah to pray to his God. Capital G. Verse 9. Jonah confessed to being a worshiper of the Lord. All capital letters. Jehovah. The God of heaven. Then verse 14, the whole ship was crying unto Jehovah, the Lord, all capital letters. Mm -hmm. Then finally in verse number 16, then the men feared Jehovah exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows, <coughs> presumably to Jehovah. I'm not prepared to say that any of these mariners were saved. I'm not prepared to say they weren't either, or they couldn't have been later. Just think about it. What might have passed through their hearts if the storm immediately ceased after they took God's prophet and threw him into the waves? Poof, no more storm. Maybe there is something to this Jehovah business. Maybe some of these mariners might have decided to seek more about the Lord. I don't know. After Jonah and the whale, we come to Nineveh. 
And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. A second time. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, is reiterated in Mark chapter 16 and Luke 24. You could say that all of this is uh, our commission. I know that the timing is a bit uh, wonky. But remember that the Lord's disciples had been devoured by the great fish of depression and negativism for a while. For three days and three nights, Christ had been in the heart of the earth, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Then we come to Acts chapter 1, where the commission was given to the disciples a second time. And the word came to Jonah the second time, get you to Nineveh. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth, which includes Nineveh. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Our scripture doesn't explicitly tell us what that message was to be other than the general statement, 40 days. Jonah isn't told what sins need to be condemned. Homosexuality, was it? Abortion, was it? The Holy Spirit simply points to the preaching that I bid thee. And there's a lesson in that. We have no right to share with our neighbors any message which has not been given to us by God. Therefore, our message cannot be one of uh, uh, simply feel-good psychology. It can't be a message that everyone is going to heaven. We all have a purgatory that will clean things up for us and we'll all get there eventually. We can't suggest that we all or all we have to do is remove a few sins from our lives and then God will accept us. Not our message. We can't pretend that every religion is as good as another and we just prefer Christ Jesus. We can't tell people to utter a few magical words. They will then force God to save them because they've uttered these words of magic. Our message must be drawn directly from, thus saith the Lord. And part of that means we can't tiptoe around sin. We can't imply that our neighbor's common law Uh, temporary marriage is all right in the sight of God. We can't suggest that homosexuality is not another soul-damning sin. Our message has to begin with repentance. And that Nineveh, whatever that Nineveh is in our day, shall be overthrown sometime in the very near future. Repent. At this point, we get thoroughly theological and thoroughly exciting. 
Jonah, with the authority of God, authoritatively declared that judgment will fall upon the sinner. We can and should, with meekness and boldness, declare sin's curse and Christ's salvation. We can be positive about it. We can be assured about it. As I said, we don't have a record that Jonah actually told his neighbors to the north to repent, explaining that unless they humble themselves before the holy God, they will be destroyed. We aren't told that he said this sort of thing. But those people show the signs of repentance. In this, we do have a clear revelation that the results of our witness belong to the Lord, not to us and our eloquence, whatever words we might be using. We sow the seed, Apollos comes along and he waters the seed, but it's God that giveth the increase. It's God that uh, reaps the harvest. The people of Nineveh believed God. Verse number 5, chapter 3. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. This is essentially what Peter told the Thessalonians later on. You believed God. Inexplicably, those people, from the king, down through the regular citizens of Nineveh, to the slaves that ministered to them, these people began to show the fruits of repentance. But why should anyone believe our testimony of salvation from sin through the Lord Jesus Christ? Some of those to whom we witness went to school with us. And they remember, she wasn't a straight-A student. She's not all that smart. They remember how we used to sin as loudly and as proudly as they did. They were raised in a different religious denomination, which they still believe is as good as ours. Why should they believe our report? Why should they believe that they should repent and trust Christ Jesus? Just because we say so? It's not particularly logical that they should so long as we leave the Holy Spirit out of the equation. But as Acts 5.31, 2 Timothy 2.25 teach us, repentance is a gift from God. Amen. It's not the result of our overwhelming arguments. It's not a product of the sinner's logical cogitations. <laughs> Nineveh is a clear demonstration of the divine gift of repentance. What took place in that city is without explanation, apart from divine intervention. And the fact is, that is always the case. Even when it's not so crystal clear as it was in this case, if the Lord doesn't directly and personally draw the sinner... He will never come to Christ. What comfort there is in the knowledge that the sovereign God is in control of our personal evangelism. We don't have to be filled with eloquence. We don't have to be filled with theology. 
We are simply asked to share with others what we know that we have experienced. We need to be ready to give an answer to every man for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. And then we need to pray that the Lord draw that sinner to himself in humility and faith. The Bible tells us that both faith and repentance are gifts given to people by God. Jonah went a third of the way into the city and began to proclaim Jehovah's divine judgment. We don't know how quickly that message got to the palace. We don't know how long it took for the king to be overcome with worry and then repentance and then that little bit of faith that he displayed. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? Was the death angel stayed at the 39th day or the 11th hour? Or was it just a day after Jonah's visit to the city or entrance into the city that word got to the king and he passed that word on down to his counselors and others? It isn't important to know or the Lord would have told us. Nevertheless, the people of Nineveh repented before the Lord prior to the arrival of God's judgment. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was very angry. Chapter 4, verse number 1. Many of our sins cling to us more tightly than birthmarks and the tattoo of that former girlfriend that was put on our arm. Jonah should have repented of his sin when he saw the repentance of the people of Nineveh. But he didn't. In fact, his sin became more intense. And he prayed unto the Lord Jehovah. I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great, great kindness. And repentest thee of the evil. Repentest thee of the evil means that God often withdraws his promise of judgment replacing it with his promise of mercy. And judgment is not evil in the sense that it is bad. It simply means uh, uh, wicked. It means simply severe in many places in the word of God. God didn't change his mind about judging Nineveh. Rather, he chose to display his grace rather than his judgment. He dealt with them as they deserved. So Jonah isn't really a crisp illustration of the modern soul winner. We might say that he's rather a fuzzy picture. And then Jonah is not a very good example either. Nevertheless, he has a lot to teach us. And the truth is, we have a lot to learn. We're not all that we ought to be. Right. We, have we have a commission to go into Nineveh and share with the people of that city in a loving fashion the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.